Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another Gouting Miss Best 22.com podcast and YouTube video. You can get it on YouTube and Spotify and uh, Apple, whatever. Well, I, I don't know about any of these things. All I know is, is you can get it on those things. Anyway, I'm joined today by Dr. Matthew Ramage, uh, professor of theology and co-director of the Center for Integral Ecology at Benedictine College, which is in Atchison, Kansas. I've had Dr. Ramage, uh, I've had Dr. Ramage on the show before. And uh, so he's, he's a repeat performer today. I spoke at Benedictine College uh, this past summer, had a great, great time there. I want to get a, I want to give a plug to Benedictine College. They're doing hey. something right out there. Big time. Uh, right. Uh, and it's it's just doing some stellar, I think, Catholic work out there in Kansas, close by my hometown of Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, and, and so anything from the great prairie of America, I'm always very happy to point out it is not flyover country. There is a lot going on in those places, whether New Yorkers or Los Angelians want to admit it or not. Anyway, yeah. that's that's my little Nebraska dig at the rest of the country. Anyway, uh, what we're going to discuss today uh, is something I think of importance. Uh, we're, we we are going to be discussing the new book put out by Bishop Athanasius, Athanasius Schneider, uh, who is an auxiliary bishop in Kazakhstan, and it is called Credo. Here's the book, Credo. Let me get my errant fingers out of the way. Credo. All right. And for those who are just listening, it's called Credo, Compendium of the Catholic Faith. And it is being presented in many ways as a kind of new catechism for the church. Uh, so it's called, it, in some ways, so it's kind of strange. It's Credo, which means I believe. So in mm -hmm. many ways, Bishop Schneider is saying, this is my profession of faith, uh, and this is what I, this is how I interpret the faith, but, but it is also then not just his profession of faith, but it's also being presented as a kind of catechism for the broader church. And so that's an issue that we could possibly discuss as well. So I'm going to turn it over to uh, Dr. Ramage here, to just for some initial impressions. Uh, what what is your initial just sort of off the top of your head impression of the of the catechism of Credo, and then we'll get into more specific details. Not positive overall. Okay, that's yeah. the brief yeah. comment. I deliberately did not read anything about this author. I didn't want to know about Bishop Schneider before I read the book. So uh, Larry knows, you know, you know about these things, but yeah. I, I knew he was a fairly well-known figure these days but i read it as a book um and i was excited about the possibility of the idea that hey here's a bishop who is going to talk about some concrete present day issues that some bishops aren't talking about so while i say not positive i was really happy that he treated very simply things like transgenderism why that's wrong um, you know, liturgical abuses. Most of the book is not problematic. Most of it, it reads like the Baltimore right. Catechism, right? Right. Uh, it's some of the subtler things that I think are deeply problematic, really. Yeah. And uh, in some ways, too, not to, uh, I, I agree with you. My, my overall impression was, was negative. 90% uh, of it is relatively benign. It just reads like a standard catechism. And in that regard, it, it has some good things in it. But there are there, there's about 5%, 10% that contains some 
some problematic, what I call zingers. There's some real zingers in there. All right. It directed at uh, the Second Vatican Council, directed at Pope Francis. Not that, I mean, and I'm not saying that for that reason, it's necessarily mm-hmm. bad or wrong. Both of those entities, the council and the pope, can be criticized uh, legitimately so. Uh, so we have to talk about his criticisms of those things. But that, that was my overall impression was, hmm, this doesn't read so much like a universal catechism as it is simply the, the opinions of Bishop Schneider on the contemporary situation spelled out in softball questions pitched to him by himself or maybe I don't know who who yeah. is pitching the it's put in the form of a kind of an interview right a series of questions yeah. to which he then gives answers so anyway I said I'm not going to dominate this conversation and, and I really don't want to but those are my sort of initial uh initial impressions that it, it doesn't so much read like a catechism as it does simply an interview with Bishop Schneider where he's opining on you know the the subject I mean because some of it really is kind of very topical to today yeah. You know. And that's a positive. Right. And uh, there's a beauty to the Baltimore catechism that's trying to model itself after with the Q&A, um, you know, but it, like in the intro, it builds itself. Uh, well, as the title says, a compendium of the Catholic faith. And it says, you know, it's a, a work that's entirely his own. And the most I wrote mean, I mean, on a bunch of quotes, Larry, because I just yeah. want to be precise with this. Right. Because I have the Kindle version I read from. So it's easy for me to do this. OK, but, let's go. The, Preface, it says, readers will find the result almost incredible, a complete explanation of Catholicism, which is both thorough and readable. Readable, yes. Thorough, questionable. Um, Complete explanation, not even close. Um, Entirely his own, absolutely. It's very idiosyncratic. Yes, that's my point. Yeah, I'm, and by the way, I don't mean I'm, I'm I'm not trying to criticize the question and answer format. That's typical for yeah, many. Yeah, it just yeah. to me, it reads so idiosyncratically that it reads more like an interview than it does like a typical Q&A, like from the Baltimore County. That yeah. was my point. So thanks. Yeah, for without the precision of a Ratzinger interview, say, without that. precision. <laughs> but so part ahead. of it is when you're trying to give short explanations. We all know as pedagogues that you can only do so much. But I'll give you some examples in my reading of it that I find deeply problematic. Uh, but again, you know, the basic idea like we, we both get has a, a merit to it, but it, the very subtitle, it, it gives itself, it builds itself as a compendium of the Catholic faith, which it's not. So uh, again, I, I was disappointed, but hey, anybody who says women's ordination is not on the table anymore, good job to them making that clear. But anything he already is saying has already been said well by someone else for the most part. And actually, it reminds me of Pope Francis. We both are aware of things he says that are imprecise that someone else before has said better. And we wish, at least I think I can speak for you, we wish he wouldn't have muddled it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, Muddy so I, my reading of this is really the same hermeneutic I take with regard to Francis, but on the opposite theological spectrum they both come from, right? That I'm going to owe him the charity uh, of a Christian, although he's not my bishop, it should be respect. And I think, you know, Francis deserves that. And then you get the criticisms that rightly come with that. Um, but, you know, like one thing that he points out, I thought might be interesting to talk about with you, Larry, if you're okay to go to a specific number. Sure, let's do. Yeah. Is um, it's a critique of communio theology. And I think he he may have some merit here. 
Uh, I think it's more of like an insider baseball question, but it's, it's numbers 95 and 96. I know you've heard this one before, but I wanted to hear your take on it. So he takes on Vatican II and John Paul's line that uh, man is the only creature that God has willed for his own sake, right? Um, yeah. And so he calls this the, quote, self-referential error of anthropocentrism rooted in the unchristian philosophy of Kant. Well, I I've seen that criticism before. But I wanted to see what you thought about it and then B, discuss its relevance in a catechism. Well, yeah, I mean, first off, I, I don't think it's Kant's anthropocentrism. I think that yeah. I, 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 too, have seen that criticism of uh, this this statement from John Paul and other communio theologians. Uh, but I think it is uh, a conclusion in search of an argument. Uh, they're, they're, they're really wanting to be critical of this emphasis on anthropology. And so they have to hurriedly sort of dredge up some sort of <laughs> some sort of insult that that will really stick. Yeah. And so oh, this is Kantian as if yeah. as if most of Schneider's readers here are going to understand who Kant was or even what he yeah. said. Uh, right. It's just inaccurate. It's inaccurate. What the what? Yes, there has been an anthropological turn in modernity in general, and 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 then certainly then in the church uh, over the past hundred to one hundred and fifty years. But in the in the thinking of John Paul de Lubac, Ratzinger, and the entire Bouyer, Guardini, the entire communal school of thought, resource one school of thought, the anthropological turn is also a christological turn. Uh, so it's it's better to, in a sense, always read their statements about the centrality of man in creation with an eye towards the ultimate centrality of Christ in salvation. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, from I mean, look at the title of my blog, Gaudium et Spes 22. You know, it's only in, in, you know, in the light of the incarnation of the word made flesh that the mystery of man takes on light. The, yeah. the Christocentrism of Vatican II drives John Paul's theological anthropology. Look at his opening encyclical, Redemptor Hominis. Okay, mm -hmm. it's all about reading. So in other words, go back to De Lubac's drama of atheist humanism. And then I, I don't want to belabor this point, then I'll turn it back yeah. to you. But this yeah. is so This is so essential to understand with regard to Schneider's, Bishop Schneider, too, I should be respectful, to Bishop Schneider's credo here, where, like you said, it's, it's not a complete explanation of the faith. It leaves out whole things. And this is an utterly simplistic diatribe, yeah. you know, against a very complex theological position. And it is simply meant to impugn the communal school of thinking, to undermine to undermine it, and to therefore subtly, subtly imply that we just need to go back to the neo-scholastic two-tiered sort, and not that the neo-scholastics all, Matthew Minard will get mad at me, but the, the two-tiered sort of neo-scholastic approach and so on. No, the fact is the Christocentrism of, say, a de Lubac in the drama of atheist humanism was saying, yes, modernity has made this humanistic anthropological turn, but here's what's wrong with their humanism. Here's what's wrong with their anthropology. We need to out-humanize the humanists and out-anthropologize the, the, the anthropologists, okay, by presenting Christ as the paradigmatic human being and the endpoint that God had in view when he created us in the first place. That's the yeah. communal perspective, and Bishop Schneider does not give it its due in, the, in this part of the catechism. I, I'm with you on that. I think it is. Again, I, I call it insider baseball. It, it's, it's, it's a theological debate, right? 
And so I, I wanted to point and out. And it's cheap and it's snide. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, on the very face value level, you could see it being a problem. But that's the problem is he doesn't go beyond the face value. And boy, I, if, if I could kind of point out some areas I, I want to talk about. Sure. No, go um, right ahead. That's gosh, why I have you on. I'll tell you, divine revelation would be one. Okay. Um, other religions is one. Faith and science is a disaster in this book. But maybe the most logical one to do next would be this idea of the two tiers with human dignity. I think what disturbed yes. me most about the book was that section. Um, no, it's I, not I, the area fact, I spend, This is what yeah. popped into my head. This was the number one thing that the critics of the book immediately leaped at, uh, seized upon, and the defenders of the book have really come back. This has really been the center of the debate where okay. Bishop Schneider implies that human beings do not have any inherent dignity as created in the image and likeness of God, that the only real dignity we have is as baptized into Jesus Christ, as far as I my reading it. Am I right? So go ahead. Totally. And again, I've done the unusual for myself and completely isolated my reading from anybody else or anything about the man. I'm just reading as a theology text. It, it, it gets an F minus uh, on this, um, <laughs> both theologically, but also on a human level. I, I, when you go out and talk to real people to say they have no dignity. It, it could just be that I'm blind. We always had to admit I'm blind, right? It, something yeah. is blind to me. But it, thankfully, we have the magisterium that says the opposite of what he says to correct our blindness, uh, namely a pretty authoritative statement or several from Nostra Aetate and Dignitatis Humanae of Vatican II. But yeah, so the the idea, I'm trying to find the section number, Larry. I want to say it's 225. Uh, 224 is the dignity of the human person rooted in his creation in God's image and likeness. Now, he gives a very logical answer that Adam had dignity, but then he lost it. Yes. Sin. But then he follows up with the question 225, then human dignity is not the same in all persons. His answer is no. The human person loses the dignity in proportion to his free choice of error or evil. Well, yeah, it's yeah, in the section human that. dignity and fraternity, and it begins with 224 for, for the listeners. Yes, go ahead. Right. So th the fact that, I mean, I think he's right insofar as, no, the, the dignity of the Christian is not the exact same as everybody else, which he then follows up with. But he makes that unwittingly, I hope, a straw man to say that there's zero dignity. It's this either or switch. It's either grace or nature. There's no participatory framework here by which a human might have basic dignity, 227, quoting Vatican II, I think, basic fraternity among men. So uh, there are degrees of participation, and you can say that Christians have a greater dignity without denying the basic goodness of the human person. Uh, yeah, you know, exactly. And tied up in this argument, of course, all the debates about nature and grace is, is also the question of and I and I've seen traditionalists argue against, uh, say, the De Lubakian position or the John Paul position uh, that Christ truly unites himself in the incarnation to every single human being. And their yeah. rejoinder is, no, he does not. Christ only unites himself to the elect, to the baptized. 
and he does not unite himself to the entire human race. And it's sort mm-hmm. of, which is why at mass it's, you know, for many and not for all. And that was a huge thing with many of them. Why they, many of them said the Novus Ordo is an invalid liturgy because it says for all instead of for many and so forth, yeah. at least in the translations and at least in the translations. Uh, and so, yeah, this, this is, not simply an esoteric debate about yeah. whether or not we lose our dignity when we sin and whether or not people outside of baptism have any dignity. No, there's, there's a lot at stake in, in this question. And I suppose we can debate the theological subtleties of nature and grace and, you know, di- relative analogical elements of participatory dignity, as you called it. But this this credo, this book, does not do that debate justice. And that that's the point once again. It's simply like this sort of pithy dismissal of the idea that human that Christ did in fact unite himself, however analogously to every single human being, and that when God created the human race, we did, our dignity is not effaced by our sins completely. I mean, otherwise you're arguing for some notion of the absolute corruption of, of humanity mm-hmm. in the fall, right? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a huge problem. And it ties into implications. You can see it with religious liberty. Um, let me look. It's This is way far ahead, okay? But this is 747 and 748. So he says with a very leading question, but isn't religious liberty, quote unquote, a fundamental and alienable human right? Of course, the answer is no. And then in 748, he asks, is there any legitimate civil right to immunity and exercises and spreading of false religion? Well, no, but he has this false religion and true religion dichotomy as well. Right, They're right. In complete dismissal of Vatican II, and you, you might add Aquinas and Pius IX and a whole lot of other people. But yeah. Um, so but what's scary, if, if I could say that to me, not that I think these people will ever you know, with these ideas have all the power, but this is basically a warrant for inquisition because you do not have a right to practice your religion. And right. while I, one understands the fear of indifferentism that was rightly condemned with the syllabus of errors and all these things in the context of these questions and what he says about false religion, error has no rights. And I can circle back to this and find it, but you do not have the right to practice your religion if it's not Catholic. But that, that's essentially what he's saying here, and it's shocking. Uh, it, it's, it, it entails a complete rejection of the teaching of the Second Vatican Council and Dignitatis Humanae. Let's be clear about that. Now, granted, Dignitatis Humanae has some ambiguities, and it's not a dogmatic statement, and it can be legitimately criticized, I suppose. So if Bishop Schneider wants to criticize it for its ambiguity, fine. So, but let's be clear about what then he is putting in its place. He's saying, let's set aside dignitatis, which is essentially promulgating a dangerous religious indifferentism on the level of practice, not in theory, but on the level of practice. That will be the result of it. And therefore, we simply need to go back to the idea of old-fashioned integralist Catholic confessional states wherein there is no concept of religious liberty, no concept of the rights of conscience, no concept that any religion other than Catholicism has any truth in it whatsoever of any kind. And therefore, it's legitimate for the government to ban those religions, to suppress them. And so, so you're right. 
it might be considered by some to be sort of hyperbolic or hyperventilating on our part to say this is a recipe for inquisition. But in the church's history, it has been a recipe for inquisition. So, yeah. you know, and, and the point is perception is 90% of reality, right? So if we're going to then go back to this, in other words, if Bishop Schneider is saying the church needs to return to an advocacy for Catholic confessional states as its official doctrine, what the average citizen of the world is going to hear, rightly or wrongly, is, oh, the Catholics want to reinstitute uh, the forbidden index of books, banning this, banning that and so on. Oh, and you know, a book you reviewed is so different from this. Jen, my wife just finished Schindler's uh, Politics of the Real. Right. And, and, and you can see his differences with integralism on this. The idea of a communio school of focusing on attraction, you know, here, uh, you're not going to, quote unquote, shove the religion down their throat, as Vatican II says, that to be a religious act, it has to be free. And yet we can't be indifferent because as Dignitatis yeah. Humani says, the right to freedom implies the obligation to seek the truth and adhere to it right. once it's found. But yeah, like you, it's it's pretty interesting that I've actually met individuals say stuff like this. Again, you mentioned it could be considered hysterical, but I've actually heard people say the implications out loud um, of what he said. But I don't, again, I don't fear of that happening because they're never going to gain the political power to do it. But it, it's and, out there. And, and to criticize Bishop Schneider's view, which is an integralist confessional state view, yeah. is not to imply that therefore we embrace everything about the American constitutional arrangement or or all the modern secular liberal notions of separation of church and state. I think both points yeah. of view are deeply flawed, and that is the central point of David Bill Schindler, David C. Schindler's great book, The Politics of the Real, where he says we have to recover a sense of analogical thinking, where we view the role of the state and the church in society analogically with one another. They're sort of overlapping. Uh, and, 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 but the, so... <laughs> I don't, we don't want to get bogged down in all the, the, yeah, the, the yeah. extreme theory of this. The point is, once again, the situation is far more nuanced than Bishop Schneider would, would, would have us believe, that it's either Catholic confessional states or we're going to go into this kind of gross religious indifferentism. Yeah, uh, and it, it just I'm, doesn't go ahead. true to experience, right? Because I, I've encountered, I teach a course of Benedictine called Christianity and World Religions, and, and by no means is it a relativist class, but you go and you meet real people, whether it's in your own city or in different countries. For example, I am aware of terrorism and Islam, but I've actually never met a Muslim in America personally that I didn't get along with, uh, even though there are many I wouldn't. But he ends up saying that, you know, Islam is a completely false religion. And he, he mentions some words, understandably, with a couple of things Vatican II says, but he speaks of Buddhism hinduism islam and even judaism judaism after christ's time on earth as completely false yeah and then they're demonic he calls them demonic yeah right and so then another thing philosophically i find interesting so versus a participatory framework you'd call this occasionalism right he, he asked the question can well it's 215 can the holy spirit use false religions to impart grace well the answer is no but that's because it implies that there's this on-off switch right. and nature is completely corrupted, like you said. Yeah. 
Yeah, he, he plays heavily on the distinction between natural religion, which, of course, is a virtue, and Aquinas talks about it, and he says that based on reason alone, human beings can come to certain conclusions, you know, that God does exist, that he must have certain qualities, uh, certain conclusions about, therefore, our religious duties towards this deity, and so on. He goes, so yes, there can be the movement of God's grace in natural religion as a preparatio fidei, a preambula fidei, leading us towards the gospel. But there can be no such movement of the Holy Spirit in the actual constructions of other religions, which he says are demonic deceptions. Now, that is too, I think, neat a distinction. You know, I go back to somebody when I used to teach, I used to use uh, C.S. Lewis and his book, Mere Christianity. And of course, uh, Lewis in Mere Christianity says there are three ways that God gets sort of uh, revelation into us. One is, you yes. know, one is moral conscience. One is number two is called what he calls good dreams. And number three, he says, are the Jews, you know, salvation yeah. is from the Jews. Yeah. Number two, good dreams. What he means by then Lewis was an expert at this, right? Was the entire mythopoetic, imaginative, religious world, of, which of course is a mixed bag of the yeah. demonic and the angelic of error and truth. But it is simply really awful to simply say that all of the mythopoesis that we see as the fruition of religiosity, natural religiosity around the world is simply demonic. Yeah. Uh, and, and is to be utter. I like I used to teach Muslim and Hindu girls in my classes. And I have to say, I had many Muslim girls come up to me after my class and say, you know, what you said today deeply struck me. And there are elements of the Quran that would say the same thing. And then we have these interesting conversations. And so it's just not possible for me to look that those those young, usually female uh, Muslims in the face and say, yeah, but you do realize, of course, that Muhammad was demonic and your whole religion is demonic and it's all deception and you're going to go to hell unless you embrace Christ right here now that you've heard the gospel preached to you. Yeah. And I hate to engage in that kind of caricature, but you yeah. know, it kind of boils down to that, doesn't it? It does boil down to it. If you really experience those true people, you you can't not see this. And by the way, I pulled these off my shelf. I'm a little biased because I I'm you know I yes. I, yes. I'm I'm teaching I mean, a course from- on that. Next it's not just Lewis. It's there are strong Catholic voices from Chesterton Bullying, to Tolkien, Tolkien. Uh, Chesterton, John Paul, Benedict, Belloc, Peggy, Claudel, the whole the whole thing, you know, the, the Catholic literary imagination, the sacramental imagination would have us enter into the fact that the world screams at us with certain uh, icons of, of the epiphany of God. And the human religious imagination, devoid of revelation, has, I mean, think of, say, Plotinus and, and, and things like, you know, yeah. they've come close, okay? They've come close, but it's all demonic, and we can't have any yeah. dialogue with them. And interreligious dialogue is indifferentism and relativism, and we have to nip that in the bud. That's what comes through yeah. in, this, in this credo. So, so, you know, on that score, there's a one of his footnotes about Vatican II. It's ironic how it reminds you of Pope Francis's footnotes in some way. With you got to go look at the note, see what it says. Uh, but on that question, does the Holy Spirit use false religions to impart grace and salvation? Well, he the footnote says, for this confusing assertion, see Vatican II, Unitatis Redentigratio. Well, um, 
first of all, that's not what Vatican II says. It doesn't use say false religions. That's loading the deck yeah. here. Yeah. And then the second thing is like my wife pointed out, because like she'll read a book and tell me what it says, and I read her. It's these great conversations we have, right? And you know, um, I told her this line, what do you think about this? And she said, Well, it's only confusing if you can't accept its plain meaning because you're trying to wriggle your way out of accepting it. You know, that's so right, right, right. Um, I think that's the sort of thing that bothers that me. That is any that way. is so insightful, by the way. I think that is so true. Yeah. Well, you know, Jen, she's more insightful than me, so it's good to have people like that around. Well, no, I met Jen uh, over dinner, and she was <laughs> very engaging conversation partner. And I think those can. My wife has those insights like that all the time too, and yeah. I think she's exactly right here in this case. Uh, what what? And it goes back to the opening comment we made about communio theology. There's a snideness to this to this book, and I know that's kind of subjective, and maybe I'm just reading into it certain negative impulses, but but. You know, when you when you look at what he says about Vatican II statements, I you there's numerous places where he says this ambiguity can be seen in Lumen Gentium, this and you know and whatever. And then you go and look it up, and you say, wait a minute, that's not what Vatican II is saying. And then you realize he's ignoring the plain sense meaning of what the council is saying because he wants to impute to it something that it's not saying, because mm-hmm. he wants to reject it. Yeah, yeah. And again, I draw the parallel with Francis, uh, the way I approach Francis, I'll make a footnote. Francis is confusing here. Benedict says it more clearly, but I'm going on the plain sense of what he says, which is in fact confusing, right? And so of course I grant him the the ability to make these comments, but it's the way it's done. It's the telos. Um, And I think it's going to mislead a lot of people. And, you know, that's just, you know. What what it's going to do, I mean, yeah. Fortunately, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, this book is going to be read by very conservative Catholics who are already well disposed towards its anti-Vatican II, anti-communio theology, anti-Pope Francis message. And they're going to read it in the, in the spirit of a confirmation bias. And those mm-hmm. who do not like the kind of Catholicism represented by Bishop Schneider are not going to read it. <laughs> or, you know, and, and, and so it's, it's going to not really become a sort of standard catechism for anyone other than a certain no. element, a certain element but, within the church. And so go ahead. No, I just see it as a work of mercy here, even though surely we're never completely correct in what we say. And you even draw more attention to it by talking about it. it this is the sort of thing that has to be called out. I see it all the time, especially the last 10 years as an educator, yeah. whether it's at college with undergrads or men training to be diaconate candidates or master students or whoever it is I'm talking to, there's this desire for clarity that's not being given from the top. Yes, And so yes. people will latch on to anything. But part of my ministry, if you will, as I see it, is just offering people like Benedict or John Paul as yes as balanced figures, you know, and, and and that's what this is not doing and not giving them a chance to be heard. You yeah, know, it's so, just yeah, it, yeah, it's shocking that the the extent to which very conservative Catholics these days have now been propagandized into this notion that even John Paul and Benedict were squishy modernists that we should just ignore and we need to go back to the pre-Vatican II theology. When in point of fact, John Paul and Benedict give us precisely the kind of clarity that we need, that this catechism gives us, but falsely so, and that we need the clarity of a John Paul and a Benedict. Yeah, totally. 
And again, the implications, there's just one more on this topic I want to talk about. I'm going to have to search it in my document real quick. It's under the Jewish people. It's got to be close to that. It's 206, give or take. Okay. So you contrast this with John Paul II and the, the approach of Benedict and the various commissions of the Vatican. It says in 206 on Romans 11:29, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And he goes, well, God has abiding love for the Jews, foretelling their conversion at the end of time. But in the meantime, contemporary Judaism as a whole exists as a rejection of God's calling, since there can be no fidelity to the old covenant where its fulfillment and the new is denied. Uh, I don't have any reason to suppose he's anti-Semitic or you know in any kind of way that he would want to harm Jews. I, that's not at all what I would say here. But it's, it's interesting how that I've heard by Catholics used for anti-Semitic purposes. Yes. And does he not say elsewhere in his catechism here that the Judaism of today is not the same at all yeah. as the Judaism of the time of Christ? Yeah. Uh, and the, of course, you know, to be fair, yeah, because he says there's no temple, there's no temple sacrifice, there's no priesthood, there's no Davidic king and so on. But in rabbinic Judaism, we do have we do have a sort of continuation of something that was around during the time of Christ, which was the kind of rabbinic Judaism of the synagogue of the Pharisees. You know, uh, and that's who the Pharisees were essentially. They were like rabbis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and, and so essentially, rabbinic Judaism did survive. So I don't understand his claim that that just because there's no temple and no sacrifice and no priesthood and no king that therefore this is not the same Judaism. Well, it's not exactly the same. It's, yeah. it's, it's a bit. But again, it's the on-off switch, right? It's, yeah. it's either or grace or pure nature or pure fallen nature. And, and it, to, for those of us who are in the biblical scholarship world, this is just so manifestly false, it's laughable. Because, uh, again, many people I know who are very strong Catholics, we use Jewish scholars all the time. Yeah. For, I'm thinking, the, I don't know, Amy Jill Levine pops in my head, John Levinson. There's a bunch of them that are really good. Or Matthew Levering up at Mundelein holds conferences uh, in you know with Jewish people, not because he's trying to tell them how wrong they are, but in order to genuinely learn from them as well. Right. Well, as, look as, at as uh, or Abraham Heschel's great books on, on the prophets. Yeah. Or, mm -hmm. And lately I met Brant Petra at the, conf the Word on Fire conference, yeah. which is all of his books, which demonstrate yes. quite conclusively the deep and profound Jewish roots of the Christian faith. Not that Bishop Schneider would deny the Jewish. He's not a Marcionite, right? Right. Would, but, but, but the implication of, of, of dialogue with Jewish scholars and books like Brant Petra's and so forth is that there is an ongoing reality to Judaism, that has to be taken into account. In other words, once again, like I like what you say about the on-off switch. Either Judaism now is just one more false religion, and God still loves them in a special way with an eye towards their eventual conversion. All right. So, but there's nothing special about them right now, and there's no covenant with them right now. Either that, and and they must convert to Catholic. Either that, or it, it's it's some sort of loosey goosey. All religions are equal, kind of a thing. It's yeah. the position, the current position of the Catholic Church from Vatican II through John Paul and Benedict is that the covenants 
with the Jews remain. The Christianity does not remove them, but that also does not mean that the church should refrain from trying to bring Jews to Christ. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there there is a tension there, um, yeah. but it's not a tension that's resolved by, in a sense, falling into one of these extremes or the other. Am I wrong? No, I think you're right. I mean, again, you mentioned we're on fire, that conference you were at. I think of that approach and and all the flack that gets taken, but leading by beauty, it's not the only thing, but I just think of the positive message, right? Okay, here's the beauty of Judaism. And Brant Petrie does such a great job on this versus the the medicine of severity as John the 23rd would speak about it, right? So it, it is, and, and it's that way with divine revelation in this book as a biblical theologian, that's a section that was highly problematic, right? It's doubling down on the ancients, but not ancient Jews, only church fathers. Yeah. N- nothing against church fathers, right? They're they're great, but I'm a I'm a Benedictine. I'm a Ratzingerian. So I've got to be like, you know, it's an explicit rejection of everything we've been doing for a long, long time with regard to resourcement and seeing the good in some things modern, many things modern, like Rabbi Heschel or God forbid, someone who's not even Christian or Jewish might have something good to say about the Bible too. Yeah. That sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. And even secular, secular thinkers who are sympathetic with, with the gospel and so on. Uh, yeah. And the, the section on revelation was, was problematic as well, because once again, it, it, it simply fell into these old categories of thinking and, and, and there's this subtle insinuation, some not so subtle throughout no matter what topic he's talking about, which is that the the only way to, in a sense, retrieve the fullness of the Catholic faith is to reject everything that's come since the council and to replace it with what was before the council. Now, he does not say that explicitly. And I know my critics, our critics, the defenders of this book come forward and say, oh, you're attacking a straw man. He's not saying that at all. And yet at every turn, where there's a hot-button controversial issue, whether it's the Jews, other religions, nature and grace, the nature of revelation, the nature of religious freedom. At every turn, he's critical of Vatican II, critical of of the post-Vatican II theologies, and says we need to return. In order to retrieve the robust Catholic faith of the past, we have to return to what was before the Council. To me, that is this catechism in a nutshell. It is. Well, and then you can show things demonstrably either false or incomplete. I, I encountered someone, I only know to some extent, but someone, anyway, I encountered someone recently who said that you should only be using sources for theology that came before Vatican II. Thankfully, they're not a professor, but the, anyway, the point was, you can only use those. So if you look at number 37, he asks, what resources should the Catholic exegete use? You know, what should we consult for biblical scholarship? And he quotes Pius XII with a, a great document, Divino Aflante Spiritu. Sure, great. And he says, the church fathers are great. Use those. But you know what he doesn't do? Well, he, of course he doesn't quote Vatican II, Dei Verbum, or the brightest biblical scholar, Pope ever, probably, Benedict. But he omits the rest of what Pius said. Pius, after quoting the, about the church fathers, comes out and says that you should make use of all means to, yes. to find the good from the, from modern resources, too. 
which is really interesting on a couple of levels. First, it goes to show, right, Pius XII was actually in Divino Aflante Spiritu, opening the door. Everybody knows any great scholar will tell you yeah. the great watershed moment in the modern history of Catholic scriptural scholarship was Divino Aflante Spiritu, where exactly. Pope Pius XII gently but firmly opened the door to Catholics finally using modern scripture scholarship so long as they maintained fidelity to the magisterium and, and notions of revelation, we can use these tools. So the fact that yeah. Bishop Schneider does leave that out is very, very telling. The second thing I would point out is this. It only goes to show, too, that when you start peeling back the layers of the onion of, of tradition to try and get back to supposedly where the robust and full Catholic faith was being expressed, and you start saying, well, it's before the council. Well, then you start looking at preconciliar popes and you start realizing, oh, wait a minute, maybe we need to go back to before Pius IX or something until you're, 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 you're left scrounging around in the anathemas of Trent for the remnants of what it is that you think is real Catholicism. I mean, even um, I mean, you see it even in the social encyclicals post Leo XIII, you see yeah. an opening. You see this. In other words, Second Vatican Council of Religious Freedom is developing a line of thought that began in 19th century popes that begin talking about human dignity and the yeah. rights that accrue to human dignity. And you see this through the social encyclicals of the pope. Vatican II, hum Dignitas Humanae, is therefore saying it is because of human dignity that we're going to say every single human being has the right to the freedom of religious conscience. So where is this pristine Catholicism? Okay, where is it? You know, there was a meme before there was memes. You've probably seen a guy back in the early 2000s wrote a little piece called The Society of St. Pius I. And <laughs> if you haven't seen it, I have not. Oh my gosh, Larry, this guy, he writes, he, he's in your spirit. He, he's, uh, he, all right, I'm just going to send it to you. Okay. But yeah. the point was that, you know, well, the Latin mass, you can't use Latin. That's the language of the Roman emperor. That's the language of the antichrist. We got to get back to the original Greek, you know, and you can't celebrate church in uh, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. That was a pagan temple, you know, and, but the, yeah. and he doesn't even go Beautiful far church, enough. by the way. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I need to go back to Hebrew, really. But I like your point. There is no pristine moment, but it is the attempt to get back to that. I know the attraction. I see it all the time, traveling across the country, teaching people like you do, um, and, and here at home as well. Uh, you double down <clears throat> on your ideological purity in, in a safe haven, but it's not really that safe. And, you know, on Divine Revelation, oh gosh, um, creation related to that is also... I don't know if you were up for that, but I, I kind of want to talk about creation as well. well. Let's do it. I mean, talk about anything um, you want. So with regard to creation, I'm thinking of evangelization. Okay. Because I get these questions. Student knocks on your door. All right, let me find it. Uh, it's got to be 140 something. Okay. I'm going to go to 150. Now, how did God create the first woman? And the answer so I imagine this 19 year old comes, he's reading Genesis. He's confused. Like, did God really take a rib? I'm, I'm pretty sure my science class said something different. So Bishop's answer is casting a deep sleep upon Adam. God took a rib out of which he formed the first woman, period. That's the answer. Yeah. <laughs> and then 
And yeah. the earlier, let me give you another one. This is number 90, 90. What was the special work of the six days of creation? And here's your answer. So what does the six days mean? In fashioning the material universe, on the first day, God made the light. On the second day, he made the firmament. On the third day, he made the dry land of plants. Simple. Yeah. Easy. I mean, that's, wow. I'm just thinking, yeah. even for my children, that's not enough of an answer. Uh, we, we uh, Yeah, you mentioned at the very beginning that his stuff on faith and science is just a train wreck. And it, and it, and it really is. One gets the impression uh, that he's a biblical fundamentalist in, in, in this, or literalist. I don't know whatever word you want to describe. Yeah, that's, I don't see how it's not that. Um, like on the 24-hour days, are these literal 24-hour days? He accurately reports that most church fathers held it as 24-hour days. It's interesting, the rhetoric, though, Larry. He starts with, most said it was 24-hour days. And then there were some, Aquinas and you know, Augustine, those couple that held otherwise. But when you lead with the majority held blank, yeah. that's the view you're propounding, right? Yeah. You know, that's yeah. not accidental. Uh, yeah. So I've seen this and you know how it is as a writer. Um, that's right. And again, you can hold that view as a Catholic, but Augustine would also say, if you want to be complete, be careful lest you make the faith look ridiculous Yes. And pose obstacles to people's belief. And Aquinas repeated that, right? That yeah. the worst thing one can do as a Christian is to make yourself appear completely stupid. Right? Yeah. <laughs> to your contemporaries. Because like, it may not be harming your faith, but that that's just not going to fly for most people. You end up boxing them in a corner of you have to interpret this in, in such a video camera way that well, an yeah, educated it, study of its genre by and any of the recent popes would tell you isn't what they even meant. You know, he nowhere says, Bishop Snyder nowhere says, by the way, we must interpret Genesis and all of its particulars literally. He never says that. Uh, and, but, but you're right. The terseness of his response, you know, how did God make a woman? Well, he made her out of a rib, out of Adam's rib. Yep. Without further ado, without further, you know, statement or, you know, how the 24 hours really 24 hours. Well, most church fathers said so. And this is what he made on each day. So there, there's a kind of, there, there's a, uh, one wonders, well, what is he really trying to say here then? Uh, what, what, what's he trying to put forward? Because the fact of the matter is, is that will not fly. Okay. The yeah. 99% of educated Catholics in the world are going to read that. And they're going to say, yeah, that's what the story says, but clearly we can't adhere to that literally. So if, if we're going to adhere to it literally, what about the biblical chronology of Genesis. What about Noah's Ark? Was there really a worldwide flood, which, if you follow the Bible's chronology, happened about 5,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago, mm -hmm. that destroyed everything, and every living land animal on the earth is now descended from, you know, pairs of animals that came off a huge boat in the mountains of Turkey, <laughs> 4, yeah. 5,000 BC? I, I, I mean, seriously, is this what you are committed to? And, and it would seem that if he's going to follow through, he's going to have to be committed to, to all of that, the whole ball of wax. Yeah, I mean, I've just seen this enough that I'd be just aghast. I don't know what the right word is. I'd be surprised if that's not what he, he's saying. And, of course, there's this constellation of things that 
I think are so beautiful, and I want to come back to beauty and make sure I'm not being purely negative here, that I think are so great about Benedict and John Paul, right? You've got faith and science, the beauty of the liturgy, of course, but it's always both and. Mm -hmm. And you have the uh, the participation of other traditions in the goodness of Christ through his grace and so many things that are all just siphoned off here. But of course, one of the parts of the constellation that you have to reject is evolution from this perspective. And I, of course, I wrote a book on this, so I'm a little bit biased and uh, maybe a, a little bit too OCD about this topic, but yeah. it is one of those things that is a standard of orthodoxy in many people's view that he he clearly takes a stance on. It's not a catechism, but I, I want to talk about for one minute and then I need to shut up because I keep getting excited about these topics. But no, keep going, keep and, going. And, and one in 155, he asks, who denies that the body of man was created by God? Chiefly Darwinists and other atheists. Okay, just <laughs> Uh, yeah. Anybody who knows English knows that means anybody who accepts anything from Darwin is an atheist. Yeah. And other atheists. Right. You okay. Know, exactly. And th then he follows that up with, does the church affirm the theory of evolution of cer as certain? Well, if, I mean, the church doesn't define science, but the fact is all of our recent popes, last three popes, uh, yes, yeah. John Paul yeah. one didn't talk about it, but they've all been in, in favor of the science is pretty clear here, guys. Um, yes. But then he quotes Pius XII again. Some rashly transgress the liberty, something like that, right? Like you can't hold this. But what he omits is Pius XII, like in his encyclical on scripture, he here is saying the body of man can have evolved. Yeah. Just not yeah. the spirit of man. Now, Ratzinger critiques him for being a little bit of a dualist here. That's another side point. But the at least he he opens the door cautiously, right? He and does. Then, I mean, in Humanity yeah. Generous, you know, he says, look, as, as long as we maintain the unity of the human race, and that yeah. might involve and that might involve a, a monogenistic view. In other words, that we had a single pair of parents, and therefore he rejects a polygenic beginning, that a multiplicity of parents. Uh, he goes, it, but but the ultimate aim, of course, is to show solidarity in Christ by solidarity in Adam, and and therefore there has to be this solidarity. And but as long as you maintain that theologically, he's clearly opening the door to yeah. evolutionary perspectives of 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 human of human. Look, I taught courses in science and religion. I have Templeton right. Foundation grants. I have attended science religion conferences, Oxford, Cambridge, all over the world. I've written a book, The God of Covenant Creation, Scientific Naturalism and Its Challenge to the Modern Christian Faith. So in other words, I'm not saying this to say I must be right and Bishop Schneider is wrong. But to simply point out, I have experience, as do you, in teaching integral ecology with dealing with modern day educated Catholics and non-Catholics. And the fact of the matter is this approach is neither Catholic, nor will it work. It will yep. it will be it will be laughed out of court, summarily laughed out of court, and 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 rightly so, because it it has a first graders approach to this question, and I'm going to be blunt about that. It is ignorant. Yeah. It is dumb. It is a non-starter. 
if you are going to claim that anybody who accepts some version of Darwinism or evolution is an atheist, okay, yeah. um, wedge you to a kind of strict creationist account. And once again, the unswitch off switch, you either believe in creation or you believe in atheistic evolution. And there's no, yeah. there's no middle point. So in other words, there's an implied criticism here in that statement, Darwin and other atheists. Oh, yeah. Of what we would call theistic evolution or Christian evolution or whatever. There's an implied rejection in all of that. And it's kind of scorched earth, quite frankly. Uh, oh, and it will, it will help. And by the way, before I turn about talk about me now getting all excited about ideas and so forth. Yeah. The fact of the matter is to go back to the issue of religious indifferentism. You want to know what will create religious relativism and differentism? To espouse the version of Catholicism that, that Bishop Schneider puts forward here, that will create indifferentism and relativism because people will see this version of Catholicism with its anti-science and ignorant mentality, with its confessional states repressing all demonic other religions other than Catholicism, and they will say, we reject that. We reject it root and branch. And we want yeah. nothing to do with it. And that will then in turn lead to the kind of atheism and relativism that he so rightly criticizes in this text. But his approach will lead to that. And, and that's what he doesn't seem to get. Although, OK, here's something interesting. It will lead to it maybe in your kids. Right. Now, Not you, in you. You may, you may be able to hold on to it, though. And right. So this is that's my idea, point. Like, that's right, my point. Exactly. Downstream. What will the effect yeah. downstream? Yeah, I, I know you're saying it's just so sad when I see this actually played out with people. Uh, I've had students come to me like almost losing their faith because they're we homeschool, by the way, but because their homeschool curriculum, which was Protestant, told them this stuff. Yeah. And the parents probably were fine. They may be loving Catholics. They may be all great. But. It, it is a real problem. And it, it it's, uh, again, it, it's, it's a very much closing off to anything that's good outside and doubling down, which may seem yes. like the right answer, but it's, it's not right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the subtext in all of it is that everything modern is bad and only the, the medievals and the fathers and so forth. We need to go back to all that and recover all this stuff. Uh, you yeah. know, it, I mean, we have to have an intelligent Catholicism in order to dialogue. I hate to use that word, but in order to have yeah. a conversation with the modern world. And if we don't have a conversation, then we're going to end up as simply sectarians living in our Catholic compound, you know, with our buried Catholic school buses and hand grenades. Yeah. Embossed yeah, with Our Lady of Fatima right. on them and so on. All right. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's the version of Catholicism, Catholic Qumran Essenism. All right. Catholic Amish. This kind of rabid sectarianism uh, is, is what this catechism is, it will, it will eventuate in. I'm not saying he is necessarily in favor of that, but those who think that way are going to glom onto this text. And, 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 and use it in that regard. And, and so, yeah, you see this dynamic all the time in our students, kids that are raised in a kind of, first off, kids that are raised with no religion in this progressivist, woke, BS, cult, yeah, they end up screwed yeah. up too. But kids that are raised in the opposite extreme of absolutist parents espousing this scorched earth anti-intellectualism, uh, they grow up hating this version of religion as well. And so ironically, paradoxically, you end up with both sets of kids ending up in the same place. Yeah. 
Um, but anyway, I want to I want to turn my attention to something else. And uh, and then you can comment. Number one, it's 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 um, it's the mere fact that Bishop Schneider issued a catechism at all when we already have a universal catechism of the Catholic Church put out by John Paul II. Uh, so is is there not in other words, and, and to give the history of this for people who maybe don't understand before John Paul put out the catechism of the Catholic Church? Uh, there had been numerous catechisms around uh, that had been promoted by various. Some of them were like fairly conservatives. One that I liked was the teaching of Christ. Uh, and another one by John Harden called, I can't remember what it was simply called the Catholic. Oh, yeah. You know, and those were nice Orthodox uh, catechisms. But then there were also like the Dutch bishops put out the famous Dutch catechism, which was very, very, very liberal. Would would Bishop Schneider like it if uh, Bishop Batzing of Germany decided that the German Episcopal Conference out of the Synodal Vague, the, the Synodal Vague, was going to put out the Synodal Catechism of the Deutsche Volk? Oh, All right. I, I mean, what, what, can you imagine what kind of a nightmare catechism that would be? It would, it would make the Dutch catechism look like the infant of Prague. I mean, it, it's 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 crazy. And 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 the fact is, so there is this in Schneider putting out this this catechism. There is this not so subtle repudiation of the catechism put out by John Paul as yeah. not adequate, as having mistakes that need to be corrected. Because why? Because it's rooted in Vatican II. Because it's rooted in a more modern understanding of Catholicism. It has squishy elements that we need to correct. Hence, I'm putting out this catechism. So what do you think of that, of that criticism? A hundred percent right, uh, including the infant of Prague. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, I, I, he's free to do that, especially for his own diocese. But part of the thing that mystifies me is, who's the readership of this? I mean, what do I know? But I, I've got to believe the readership is American Catholics. Um, yeah, it's written in English also. I, well, I mean, so, it's certainly not going to be read by people in Kazakhstan, which is like 95% Muslim and like 0.01% Catholic. Yeah. And and maybe part of his anti-Islam perspective is a lived experience of bad Islam. That's obviously possible, even probable, but it doesn't mean that that is a universal kind of approach. So it's not as the subtitle says, right? It's not a compendium of the faith. It'd be good if it was for his diocese. Then be like, okay, well, that's your bishop. You know, then you show the due respect and all these things. But it, it's interesting that we had to go to Kazakhstan to get this, right? And nothing wrong with, you know, can anything good come from Nazareth? Sure. Kazakhstan, yeah. sure. Syria, I mean, there's nothing against the country. It, it's just very odd um, that this is the case, right? And so, yeah, I, I pretty much see it the way you do. And I, I wouldn't have thought about the the Germans. I was going to say, let's have some other bishops who are good do this. But it, it but we already have the catechism, right? And yeah, granted, we, it's we, long. We, it's it, it's un it's a little bit unwieldy. I get it, but it's got a great index. And we could critique the, the bishops' conference on this, but their one on their website is almost impossible to use. Well, and the um, reason why I think that it's long and it's verbose is that it it wants to nuance things. Yeah. Theologically. So if it were presented with the question of how was how was woman created, it's not going to simply say, out of a rib, dude. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. going to say, well, 
out of a rib in the story, but here's kind of what theologically it means. That's why it's a bit verbose, I think. Yeah, no, and, and even then, um, it's like paragraphs. It's not essays. If people haven't read it before, right. they should check it out. Right. And uh, I, I really do think that, and it comes out here and there, Bishop Schneider is critical of the catechism of John Paul in a few places. Uh, and that's not to say that a catechism can't be criticized. It, it can be. Uh, and he does. Um, but I do wonder, you know, what, you know, like you, you began by saying, hey, 90% of this catechism, 95 or whatever, or maybe I said that, but anyway, we both agreed. There's yeah. a lot in this, uh, there's a lot in Schneider's catechism that is utterly benign, good, and so forth. Well, we yeah. can get all that from the, 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 the catechism of the Catholic Church, too. I mean, all that good stuff is already in the catechism of the Catholic Church. We don't need yeah. Bishop Schneider's catechism to get that good stuff. And, and nor are people reading Bishop Schneider's catechism for all of that 90% of stuff you can get in other catechisms. They're reading it precisely because of the dicey bits. Yeah. <laughs> they are reading it from an ultra-conservative Catholic point of view, precisely for where it corrects Vatican II, corrects the other catechism, corrects John Paul, corrects Benedict. That's why they're reading it, which is why I think it's important for us to focus on those those wee bits in there that seem innocuous but are not. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not going to sit here and critique the moral theology part or things like that, uh, which interested me less anyway. But I didn't find problems. You know, maybe one of my colleagues who specializes there would have. But uh, I, I was kind of rooting for this thing. You know, rooting for it to be better than I had kind of feared. But I was too. Uh, didn't pan out. You know what? I, by the way, and for for readers and listeners who might, uh, I mean, not readers, but viewers and listeners, you might. Some people might think, "Well, you already had it out for Bishop Schneider before you even read his." No, actually, I didn't. I don't know very. I had to look up even what diocese he was bishop of. I knew he was a personality out there in the church, but quite frankly, I haven't followed him. I really didn't care. Uh, I, I had no strong opinion about him, one way or the other. And so, yeah. you know, I, I, I got the book thinking, well, let's let's see what's in here. This might be in this age of confusion. Maybe this would be pretty yeah. good, you know. And then I thought, oh, man. Oh, no, not good. Yeah, exactly. My same experience. And we, we, I guess it just shows the need for us all to do a better job. Right. If this is the people's attraction. Yeah. Then well, my worry is this. Yeah. Clarity. You know, we mentioned before, you know, 99 percent of you know Catholics that are out there are not you know, really going to concern themselves with these issues. But the problem is this, because uh, people write to me all the time. Why are you always so writing about the synod and the latest motu proprio and all of these inside baseball Catholic issues? The fact of the matter is, because I am in communication, as you probably are, too, with people involved in seminary formation that young seminarians, young Catholic seminarians, especially in the United States, are very, very influenced by these trad sorts. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't, that's not necessarily bad. And I don't say that as just sort of a butt-covering yeah. statement. You know, it's not necessarily, there's a lot that the trads say that's actually good. You know, and I agree with it. Yeah, we need better liturgy and so on and so forth. Um, but it isn't good if you have an entire new generation of seminarians coming up who are going to pick up Schneider's credo and say, yep, this is the way to go. And I'm going to use this book in my parish. 
And yep. I'm going to use this in RCIA. That's what's yeah. coming. Yep. I haven't blown a fuse yet because I haven't seen that yet. But <laughs> it's yeah. uh, it, oh, yeah. it'll happen. That's um, around the corner. It, that's going to be yeah. a, if this catechism picks up steam, if it gains yeah. traction and so on. But, you know, if social media are to be believed, I mean, some of the leading lights of the of the you know, traditionalist movement are out there pushing this text as this. Finally, finally, we have this great statement from a robust and faithful bishop. You know, one of the things I'm really tired of, and I'll get on a little rant here, is this characterizing of bishops like a Strickland or a Schneider or whatever, as the sole faithful bishops out there willing to express the fullness of the faith. You know, you need to prove what it is you're assuming there. That the, that the Catholicism of a Strickland or a Schneider is, is really the only form of orthodox faith that one can hold, that that mm -hmm. is the only way that the modern Catholic faith can be expressed in an orthodox way. And, and I utterly reject that, that kind of characterization. Regardless of what you think of Strickland or Schneider or the Pope's actions against Strickland, I don't think Strickland should have been deposed personally. And I wrote to that effect publicly. But come on, can, can we? And, and, and the reason why I'm bringing this up, it, it, it adheres to this catechism as well. All of the promotional material from the publisher and from the traditionalists that are out there pushing is that finally we have this Orthodox Catholic catechism out there. And, and we have to push back against that kind of nonsense, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, as my wife says, the people who are going to be Catholic. 20 years from now who are those going to be well maybe not the kids who lose their faith over stuff like this but it's in my thought and guessing it's not going to be the left it's going to be conservative it's like ratzinger predicted i think right the smaller but stronger church yes but what he didn't say or didn't foresee is the stronger smaller and more weird and divided and unhealthy in many ways so just like Frank Sheed's old book said, theology and sanity, just being a source of sanity and hopefully joy along with it, I think has to be, has to be the lead. Uh, I, it's all there in John the 23rd's opening speech of the council. The church nowadays prefers the medicine of mercy to the medicine of, 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 uh, of, uh, of uh, the medicine of mercy to the medicine of severity. Right. I almost threw in a little bit of church father there with the medicine of immortality. <laughs> um yeah but yeah it, it doesn't mean you excuse everything right but it, it's that joy of the gospel that really as i see it needs to be our lead and it's the reason i'm christian it's not because these rules make it clear but it's because christ is is my life you know and yeah so it, we can't obviously judge the soul of people writing things but that's the impression it gives and that's why i thought it was cool that we had this opportunity. I'm, I'm, I'm glad yeah. you had the idea. I, yeah, not, a, I was going to, like you said, you wrote to me and wanted me to sort of write something about it in Catholic world report or something. And I might yet. Uh, but then I thought, you know what? I, I really am so busy with other projects right now. I, I don't want to, you know, write something or, you know, an official review of the book without actually vetting it very, very, very carefully. Better to have a conversation with somebody who has read it more carefully than I have. You, right? Yes. And, and so, uh, and 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 so I I think that's that's very good. Uh, and I would also leave with this, and I guess we need to wrap this up soon. the The value of the church 
sacramentally speaking, as the greatest Vatican II calls it, it's a great mystery. The church is mystery. The church is sacrament of Christ. Is that the church is the privileged mediator of Christ to the world? You know, in one sense, there's an old Alexandrian uh, theology of the incarnation, sort of the corpus triforme, that mm-hmm. revelation as such is the incarnation of the word in Jesus of Nazareth. That's revelation as such. Then there is the God-privileged witness to that revelation in the incarnation of the word, in a sense, in scripture. Mm -hmm. But then there's a third incarnation of the word in church, sacrament, doctrine, magisterium, saints, the whole ecclesial thing, which then mediates, mediates the primary revelation, which is Christ. And it's in that privileged witness scripture down through the ages. And so the church has essentially a mediatorial role. The church mediates Christ to the world. Therefore, this is why it is important the doctrines of, say, indefectibility, infallibility, and so forth, they're not ends in themselves. They're important ways, regardless of how you want to parse them, of saying that the church does, in fact, reliably mediate Christ to the world. Now, that being said, there is a tendency, I think, among some very, very devout, very conservative Catholics to conflate all of those incarnations of the word into the magisterium of the church. It does become a kind of ecclesiolatry where one forgets that the church has this subservient role to You spoke of revelation before and Dei Verbum. This strikes me as what Dei Verbum was trying to say. Mm -hmm. And and, and thus we have to avoid this kind of ecclesiolatry, I think. Yeah. You know what? I've never heard that term precisely, but it reminds me of Ratzinger when he says, in his Erasmus lecture on biblical scholarship in 88, we had to watch out for fideism, liberalism, but also a positivistic and rigid ecclesiasticism. That's exactly what I mean. Right? It's the Catholic version of fundamentalism, and it amounts to the same thing, the inability to see a context, the inability to embrace the whole broader tradition, and it's just such a joy to be Catholic because we do have that. And, yeah, and, uh, and, yeah, and perhaps ecclesiasticism is a better word than ecclesiolatry, uh, but because it, that, that implies idolatry, right? Uh, but, but yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you used that word. That's a good that's a good correction, I think, to call it ecclesiasticism rather than ecclesiolatry. It is, <laughs> but one one way or the other. And, yeah. <laughs> and my point, my point is that. I see that kind of magisterial positivism or ecclesiasticism and rationalism at work in catechisms like Schneider's. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, that's the kind of the point I'm trying to make. And if, you know, and people might find that it is a useful and beneficial book to read. I think so, so long as one can place it in, in proper context and realize that it has its flaws. Yeah. I would just tell people go read the actual catechism. Father Mike has a podcast. Isn't he doing catechism in a year right now? I think so. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's stuff like that. That's the actual teaching of the church. And maybe I should make this my last point so I can go eat lunch, but it's like people, I I know they'll, they'll quote this or that vision or this or that document from 15 or whatever, but they've not actually read the Bible or read Vatican (laughs) two. Exactly. 
Like, yeah. let's actually retrieve these these precious sources, especially scripture, that are right there in front of us. And that's right. And, yeah. What do you think <laughs> so, of the footnote, the subsection three point A of Transanethema of X Y Z? Yeah. You say, well, have you read the book of Samuel? No. <laughs> No, I haven't. Okay, well, fine. Go read that and then come back to me and talk to me about Trent. But anyway, now we're off on that tangent. But anyway, hey, thank you so much for this conversation, because I think it's actually uh, been been very enlightening and very beneficial. And uh, and so I, I can't thank you enough for coming on today. Oh, I'm glad we got to do it, Larry. Great. We'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. And go have some lunch. All right. See you later. All right. Thanks a lot, everyone. Bye bye.